can let the uh, children be dismissed for a junior church. And uh, there's a sheet under chairs around you. If you want to grab that, uh, that will keep you from having to uh, kind of flip around a lot this morning. I'm going to do something I don't usually do. I think last time I did this, I printed out a sheet also. Um, I usually try to be text-based in my preaching of the Word here at the chapel. Um, This morning, I'm going to wrap up some uh, thoughts that we've been working through on what it means to be a servant uh, in the shape and form of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so uh, I printed out the uh, verses for you in text that I can't even read because it's too small. And I printed it in fast draft mode, so it's my apologies, okay? If you need glasses, there's a pair under my chair over there, and you can access them if you need them. Um, Principles that we've gone through up to this point in this area of becoming servants of Christ. Uh, First thing we looked at as we went into Acts chapter 6, and we, we were really springboarding off of the text that talks about the establishment of what we call the diaconate, the deacon ministry in the local church. Needs arose that were unmet, and the response of the church was that to, was to establish a structure in which and through which those sensed needs could be met. All right, the problem was that there was a kind of a disruption arising amongst people in the church. Certain people's needs weren't being met. They thought it was because of racial, ethnic, or socially related issues. Church responded to that and said, that's not the issue here. There are issues that need to be addressed, and we need to establish a structure to be sure that the needs that are sensed get met. Okay, because what happens in the church often is this. We're aware that there are needs, but we, we either lack the heart of a servant, okay, which I think is often the case, and we tend to call somebody and say, you know what, this person in the church is needy, and the church should do something about that. Okay, my response to that is, again, as I said to you the other week, who would the church be? All right, and... Yeah, well, the person calling me on the phone is part of the church. Okay, so there are needs that we should just simply respond to. In this case, some of these burdens were weighty, heavy financially, and so they established a structure in which those needs could be met. That's what basically happens in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Okay, it was done according to 1 Timothy. Then you find, if you will, guidelines for the deacon ministry that serves widows in the context of the church. That work must be done with moral integrity. It must be done in the context where there are verifiable and established needs in the individual's life. It wasn't that people just came and asked and the church just freely gave away money. There was a, a structure and a moral expectation that was put into place. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 6. Okay? Last week we looked at Luke chapter 10. And... The story of the Good Samaritan basically comes down to the question that Jesus asked at the end of the story. Jesus says, who was the neighbor to the man who was robbed, beaten, and left on the side of the Jericho Road? Who was the neighbor to him? Was it the two that saw the need, sensed the need, and walked by and did nothing? Or was it the Good Samaritan? And we know the story. It was the Good Samaritan who saw the need and responded in a way that met the needs that were present. Okay, so the question that Jesus, I think, in that text is asking us is this. What kind of a neighbor are you? Okay, what kind of a neighbor am I to people around me in regards to the needs that, in a sense, surface along the way in a fallen world? And folks, please understand this. Most of the needs that arise around you are a result, not necessarily of an individual's sinfulness, but they're typically the result of the fact that they live in a broken, fallen world. Okay, in which things, you buy them new, and what do they do? They tend towards decay and deterioration and need help, right? True with cars, true with computers, true with just about everything in our lives. You buy a house, it's going great, deterioration. Same thing is true physically for people. Okay, they, there are needs that arise because of physical limitations, and so there's a need to go. When we are meeting those kinds of needs, what are we doing? We're doing the same thing that Jesus did. Jesus came to relieve our ultimate need. And when we function as servants in the context of the body of Christ, what are we doing? We're putting skin on Jesus. And for the watching world around us, what are we doing? We're making Jesus Christ, who came as the ultimate problem solver and deliverer, we're making Him visible. That's the story of the Good Samaritan. 
The religious people didn't get it. They saw the man laying there. They walked by. Introduce a non-religious or irreligious man. And what does he do? He feels a need. He responds to that need. Pours himself out sacrificially. And the need is completely taken care of. Jesus asked the question then. Which one of these is really, truly religious? Okay, and the answer is so fundamentally clear that the religious man that asked the question that spawns the story, he says, well, I suppose the one who stopped and helped him. He was caught in a catch-22. Okay? So, so we established first that there is this issue of needs in the church. The church responds to those needs with a structure to be sure that the felt needs, the sense needs, become met needs. Because that's what Jesus came to do. He was among us as one who serves. Third, we made this conclusion last Sunday. We said that when we act in loving, selfless ways, we turn on the magnet that attracts people to know Christ. Okay, we, we turn on the magnet. We talked about immigration and how you know, the question is, how do we turn off the magnet so that we have less illegal immigrants and more legal immigrants? How do you turn off the magnet? The church has a different question to ask. And that is, how do we turn on the magnet that attracts people to come and to know Jesus Christ? And I think the simple answer to that question is, we start acting like Jesus. It's one of the most amazing things when you read the Gospels. Watch the life of Christ, and what do you find? Regularly, there are multitudes doing what? Following Christ. Why are they following Him? Not because He was nasty and judgmental. Okay, why are they following him? He was constantly doing deeds of kindness. It was, it was the essence, if you will, the very nature of his existence as a human being. You think back to Philippians 2. It says that Jesus disregarded his divine, eternal attributes. He set them aside and became a man. Why? So that he could serve us. So that he could put skin on God. So that we could see the heart of God in the person of Christ. And folks, here's what I would argue this morning. We live in a world that needs to see God. We live in a world that needs to see Jesus Christ again. And the way that He wants to manifest Himself is through what He calls His body. The physical expression of Jesus on planet Earth is the local church. And it's only when we are serving and sacrificial and selfless that we give the world an accurate portrayal of Jesus. So my encouragement to you this morning is to think through a couple principles that I'm going to lay out before you and just ask yourself, say, God, please show me what it means to put into practice the things that we've spent three weeks talking about so that it's not just my heart was tweaked. Yeah, you know, I'm probably too attached to my things. Yeah, I'm probably a little too self-centered. Yeah, I'm not really giving with my time. That God would take you beyond those feelings by the power of the Spirit to a place of transformation where your lifestyle changes. And you don't just feel badly. Guilt isn't going to produce change. Okay, only the Spirit of God is going to move you from where you are to where God wants you to be. Of that I am utterly confident. And so this morning as you listen, I want to encourage you to listen to what God is saying to you this morning. Okay? So a, a few principles that summarize what we've been talking about are these. Number one, service is not what Christians do. Servants is who Christians are. And we need to get this right just like we need to get the issue of evangelism right. Okay, as a Christian, you have been called by God to be an evangelist. Not to do evangelism, but to be an evangelist. Okay? We are called by Jesus Christ not to do service, but to be servants. Okay? And there is a huge difference between the two. Okay? One is, I select an event, I'm going to go to the event, I'm going to serve, and come away saying, I'm a servant. All right. The other is a, just a reorganization of how I live my life. How I respond to needs when I see them and sense them. A servant says, I've sensed a need. I'm going to go and do something about it. I'm not going to call the church. I'm not going to call the pastor. I'm not going to call leaders in the church. I'm going to become active in meeting those needs. Why? Because it is by definition who we are in Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 22, I think you find a, a text that helps us to gain clarity on this thought. It says, also a dispute. And by the way, just for context, evening of the crucifixion of Christ. Okay, the night in which he is betrayed. Also a dispute arose among them. Okay? And every time this happens amongst humanity, think of this. 
the disciples were capable of this kind of selfless, me-centered thinking. If they were, and they were the people that Jesus chose to transform the world, and he believed he can change them, he can change you. And he needs to change you. Why? You're capable of the same behavior that they find themselves involved in on this night. And if you think about it, it is so incredibly sad that as the Savior prepares to humble himself, even to the point of death, death on a cross, what are the disciples doing? They're in a raging debate about which one is more important. And the way that it worked was this. The more important you are, the more people served you. That was the ancient system. That's the modern system. A lot lot has changed. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. Interesting way to phrase it, isn't it? And the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? Now, what is he doing? He's speaking purely from human measurements. The one at the table being served is the more important person. Okay, if you watched a movie like The Help or Downton Abbey or, or some of those types of movies that are butlers and waiters in the house, who's the most important person in the picture? The person that sits at the head of the table and has people bowing down to him. What does Jesus say? He says, who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? And the answer is yes. But you see the trap is set, right? And what does Jesus say? But I am among you as one who serves. Now that is an amazing transformational statement to me. What did Jesus do? He came and served. It was, it was his identity. It, was, it wasn't a role that he chose. It was, his, it was the identity that he chose. So that then all of his life is lived out as what? A servant. John chapter 20. As he is preparing to leave the disciples after the resurrection, what does he say to them? He says, what you saw me do, go and do it. And folks, here's the conviction that needs to settle on us. Okay, If I am not cultivating the, the, the heart of a servant, if I'm not becoming what I really am as a Christian, then at some point I need to pull up and say, how can I say I am living in obedience to Christ if service does not characterize my life? Okay, Sometimes you've got to step back and say, you know what, I've been hearing this for three weeks. Am I allowing the Spirit of God, am I asking Him to show me how in every area of my life I can get off my high horse and self-centeredness and become someone who steps down and washes feet? Because that's what Jesus did on this eve. He was the one who sat at the table, rightfully so, at the head spot. But what did the one at the head spot do? He got up, took off his robe, and washed their feet. And then he looks at us and he says, what you saw me do, Go and do that, because that's what it is to be a Christian. Okay, that, that servant's heart validates a genuine transformational work of the Spirit of God in your life. And the Good Samaritan gives us a picture of that. An immediate crisis, medical treatment is given, transportation is given, housing is given, finances are given. What is he doing? He's serving. He becomes a picture of Christ. And becomes a picture of what every child of Christ should truly when you see a need don't call a paid professional okay go and meet the need because that's what servants do and it brings joy and glory to God second thought that I think emerges from these passages that we've looked and this kind of flips us back into Acts 6 and verse 7 which is at the top of your sheet second thought is this Service requires a shift in thinking about church life. Okay, last week we talked about a shift in our thinking about our own lives. I think it also requires a shift in thinking about how church functions and happens. Okay, I was raised in a church that did everything possible to attract people to the church. Okay, we did all kinds of things. I was in a church in the early 70s that topped out at about 2,000 people. 
okay, which was unheard of in those days. We did balloon launches, helium balloon launches with tracks attached. And we did everything we could to attract people to the building. Okay, you know what I think Jesus did? Jesus was not attractional. What was he? He was missional. Look up both those words in your computer. They're not there. Okay? I just can come up with something better, more effective. Okay? He didn't seek to attract people. He went to people. Okay, one of my concerns as we look down the road and talk about a building is that we become all about attracting people to us instead of us going to people to serve. You know what God wants us to do? He wants us to come together to be strengthened, to become effective servants in the kingdom. And then he wants us to go out and meet people where they are. To go out and make a difference in people's lives. Go out and serve people. That's what Jesus did. You know what he did? He spent his life as an itinerant. People came to him and said, hey, we want to follow you. What did Jesus say? You know, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has what? No place to lay his head. Why? He was among us as one who serves. His life was fundamentally detached from the material realm and given over to going to people and meeting their needs. Okay, and I think sometimes we just need to, we need to sit back and say, what is our goal? What is my goal as a Christian? Is it to attract people to us or is it to go to people and meet the needs that are present? I think the answer to the question is that Jesus went to people and spent time meeting their needs as one who came to seek and to save those who are lost. Third thought is this. Hospitality is the biblically prescribed and practical expression of service. Okay? If you want to do something fascinating, go into Bible Gateway and look up the word hospitality and hospitable. Okay? And you will find that they become fundamental designations of what church life is to be about. Okay? Now, what is hospitality? All right? The word in the original language literally means this. Love of strangers. Okay, so the word love and the word stranger are merged together in the original language to make a new word, and the new word means love of people that are unknown. Okay, that's an amazing thought. Because what do we call hospitality? Okay, I have people that I'm close to, I invite them over to my house. What is that? Well, that's hospitality. That's not how the Bible describes hospitality. The Bible describes hospitality as loving people that are unknown people that walk into your life that have a need and you say, you know what, I'm going to go on a mission to do what Jesus did. Think about Jesus' life, the woman at the well. She says to him, why are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan? What's the answer to the question? For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He came on a mission. He lived that mission. He says to you and I, when I'm done, you carry on. Do the things that I began to do and teach, Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, which is a verse, I don't know about you, but that's a verse that is settling in on me. I never, never saw that verse. This is the beginning of the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Who completes them? Other servants. He came to serve. He sends us out to serve. It is the fundamental identity of what we are as believers. I think of the man named Zacchaeus. Jesus is walking down a road. This little man of stature climbs up into a tree so he can get a view of Jesus. What does Jesus do? He stops the whole crowd. And what does he enter into? He enters into a seek and find mission. He seeks out Zacchaeus and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house today. Okay, folks, when is the last time? Just think about this. When is the last time you broke out of your bubble of comfort, of familiarity, and actually lived in obedience to the commands to practice hospitality? Okay, they're not suggestions in Scripture. They're in the present and imperative mode in the Greek language. Which means they are things that God has called us to do, and a failure to do them is what? Anybody want to say it? It's disobedience. If I'm not practicing love of unknown people, I cannot say I'm doing what Jesus did. I can't. Okay, now, I, I may be very comfortable in my sphere of influence, and I'll be honest with you, I am. You know, the event that I probably hate most in my married life is my wife's class reunions. Okay? It's, and you're going to be like, no, 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 come on. You're, you, you like that? No, I don't. I, I go and I sit in the corner and I hope someone comes over and talks to me. And I hope they're a Christian. <laughs> or someone that's seeking, whatever. 
Okay, I, I have the weirdest time at those events. Now, I can go to other places, and I'm fine, totally fine. Okay, I'm just telling you, that's the one thing that, uh, next time I think I might say to my wife, everybody's getting older, you just, you know. It's an awkward thing for us, isn't it? Now, here's what I want you to realize, okay? And if you're visiting with us, with us today, I don't mean to embarrass you or make you feel awkward, because you already do, okay? But that's how you feel when you walk in this place. What does the Bible say? Show hospitality to strangers. Over and over. Let me read these verses for you. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. It is required of leaders in the context of church that they... How does Paul say it? Notice what he says. He says, Now the overseer must be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable. What? Loving, unknown people. Titus chapter 1 and verse 8. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good and is self-controlled. Romans 12, 13. It is required of leaders because it is expected of every believer. Hebrews 12 and verse 13. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice. The word here is fascinating because this word actually, the translation in the New International Version, 1984, gets it a little bit wrong. The word literally means dioko, to pursue and to seek strangers. Seek love of unknown people. It is a, in Hebrews, it is a mission that is given to every believer. That we are to break out of our comfort zone and begin to seek out people that we don't know who need to know Christ. Why? That's what He did and I'm not walking in obedience to the life of Jesus until my life is characterized by a desire to see people outside of Christ coming into the realm of knowing Him. And folks, here's what I'm going to tell you. It is the most awkward, joyful experience you will ever have. When you start engaging people, talking with them about the most important thing in your life, seeking opportunities to do that through the, the strangest interactions... And, and you can just go on and on. As you begin to start to live life as a mission, you start looking at simple, little, silly things that you look at and say, oh, that doesn't matter, that doesn't matter. I mean, it, it's around you all the time. There are people that you can help. They may be doing the most menial tasks. You stop and help them. They will be stunned and amazed. Tell them why you did it. Tell them what drives you, what motivates you. Don't do it in like a freaked out kind of way, but just in a very sincere way. That's in Jesus' name. Okay? Nice to meet you. And just, just starting to do what the Bible says in this area. For those of you that attend this church on a regular basis, there are people here this morning that I know have never been to this church. You know what my fear is? After the service is over, you're going to act normal. You're going to find the people you're comfortable with and not intentionally, but unintentionally, you will disregard people that are visiting. Why? Because we have a natural tendency. What's our natural tendency? My natural tendency is to seek comfort. It's to seek what I like. It's not to serve. It's not. Only the Spirit of God begins to prompt that inside of our hearts. And we start to say, God, change me. Don't let me be the person that looks past the person that I don't know. Because what's your greatest fear? Your greatest fear is to walk up to someone and say, I haven't met you before. Are you new? And they say, well, actually, I've been coming here for six months. Okay, the sad thing is that you have never met them. That is profoundly sad. Let's be honest. We're not that big of a church. It's not that hard to take time to get to know people. Okay, here's the thought that runs in my mind. People are fundamentally awkward when they walk in a new place. Many of them are seeking to know something or they wouldn't be here. Okay? You understand that? They wouldn't be here. They're looking. You know what they're looking for? Most of them don't even know. They're just looking. But what they're really looking for in the end of their search is what? It's that pearl. It's that treasure. And what does God want you to do? He wants you to walk up to Him and show hospitality. Love for people that you don't know. That doesn't benefit you. Because that's what a servant does. They see a need and they meet the need. And if they don't do it, they get disciplined or fired. 
God is so gracious with us. He is so patient with us. Folks, here's what I would love. I would love to be the pastor of a church where when I look around after the service, because sometimes when I'm speaking, I'll identify people that I know have never been here, to the best of my recollection. When I'm standing up here talking to someone who has a specific need, I'm looking back. I cannot help but looking back to see if anybody cares. And sometimes we do, and let's be honest. Sometimes we don't. Okay, and I want God to fundamentally cause us to realize the life of Christ is practicing hospitality as a servant who has taken on the God-given responsibility of completing the things that Jesus began to do and teach. He showed us how. And what a difference, what a difference it will be in our church family. If after the service is over, the first thing I look for is not a comfortable conversation about the same old thing, but someone that I can serve. And if I don't identify the person, then go on, talk to each other, have fun, okay? We're family too, and I understand that. But when the first thought in my mind is me, that's not good, okay? So sometimes we just need to, we need to shake ourselves and say, what, did, what would Jesus do in this situation? Or better yet, take another hypothetical and ask, what did he do? He walked up to unknown people all the time. It means that we would become intentional about the removing the awkwardness that people that visit within our assembly have. That we'll, when we see them, we're going to say, you know what? I remember what it is to go in a new place with people I don't know. I do. I know what it is to hide. I know what it is to say, you know what? I'm going to find a nice, comfortable spot and kind of be unknown and unnoticed. And when someone walks over and shakes your hand, what does it do? It's just like, it's the icebreaker. Okay, we have a word for this. Okay, God wants us to practice hospitality. He commands us to practice it. And I'm leaving out a couple verses that you can certainly go and look up. I was telling a friend recently that I, I was sent by some of the leaders in our church probably 15 years ago. I don't know if my wife remembers this. She's better in stranger situations than I am. We were sent to a marriage retreat. And it was at one of those conference centers where everybody's been coming forever. And everybody knows each other. So the, the icebreaker for the night was this. All right, if you've been coming here for over 50 years, put up your hand. Like 50% of the people are like, oh, crap, this is not going to be, I'm not going to like this. All right, you've been coming for 30 years, you know. Then they get down to five and there's a couple and I'm like, this feels so good. Right? You know what I'm talking about, right? They're, they didn't do that on purpose. But I, you know what I felt like? I felt like I wanted to run I like people, okay? So if you're an introvert, you want to dive in a casket. That's what you want to do, right? So I'd rather be dead than enjoy this, okay? Do you realize that when people walk in here, especially in a building that's a rented facility, they're making enormous judgment calls as they walk up those steps out there. You know what they wonder? Are they going to find what they're looking for? They don't even know what they're looking for. But at one level, they do. They're looking for a friendly face. They're looking for someone who will break the ice for them. Who will serve them. And step out of their normal sphere of influence and say, you know what, hi, I don't think... And by the way, if you don't like being embarrassed by saying, I don't think I've ever met you, and they give you that, I've been here for six months or five years, I say to people, I don't think I've met you. Okay? Honest truth. Right? It's a lot easier to deal with than, I've been coming here for five years, and you never said hi before, you idiot. Okay? Okay, so hospitality is a practical, practical expression of our love. Why is it so valued? Why does the Bible over and over and over hit on this topic? Why? Because it is so incredibly encouraging. It is such a clear expression of the love of Christ and of the family love that is what it is to be in the church. People see you enjoying a relationship with someone else and they also realize that you're ignoring them. Okay, and when you go over to them, and you, you say, hang on a second. Okay, so it may happen. Like you're talking to people, it's fine. But when you see someone who's new, stop the conversation. Say, I have something more important I need to do right now. And go meet the person. Go express the love of Christ. Glad to have you here. Don't be weird. Okay, and overbearing. I don't corner them, but just, we're glad you're here. You know, whatever, whatever kind of stuff you like to talk about, do it. Okay? But it's a shift in how we approach coming to church. All right, I, if you're sitting in a row and a stranger's walking by, slide in. Ken shouldn't have to ask you to move in. What's hospitality? 
Same thing you try to teach your kids. Move, make room. They're uncomfortable. They'd rather sit on the end of the row. They'd rather sit in the back row. Why? Because that's what I do when I go somewhere new. Okay, they just, they, they're looking to feel comfortable. May God help us. Okay, at the closing bell at the end of church, don't head for the door. Don't head for a friend. Let the first thought be, is there someone here that I can serve? For whom I can be Jesus Christ. What they're looking for and don't even know. Okay, and that's the thought. To just let it sink in. They're searching for what they don't know. The limitations of service. And this is important to me as we've talked about getting involved in people's lives. This is thought, I think I've, I've alluded to it a few times. But I want you to, as you think about serving Christ, I want you to make sure that you have a gospel perspective on service. Okay, and what I mean by that is this. I'll give you two statements about the limitations. These are meant to be clarifications. Okay, first is this. Acts of love are not a substitute for the words of life. Okay? Acts of love are never meant to be a substitute for the words of life. Okay? People may be attracted to who you are as a representative of Jesus by what you do, but what you do does not speak the words of the cross. Okay? Some people are very comfortable serving, opening their mouth. (laughs) All right, some of you, you're very quiet. I understand. Okay, I understand. You don't believe I understand, but I do. Okay, I've been in those situations where I was like, okay, but understand this, okay? A couple of people around here bought rings recently, okay? You get it, you don't, none of you guys just gave the girl a diamond, did you? Brian, did you do that? No? Okay. Rocco, did you? Okay, what did you do? Rachel picked it out, okay. All right. What do you do? You go and you find something that is going to adorn and make that stone look precious and beautiful. And folks, the acts of love that God has called us to do are the setting in which Jesus Christ is placed. The setting in which Jesus Christ is exalted and elevated and beautiful and attractive. He doesn't come without a setting He comes in a setting. What's the setting? The setting for the church is acts of love. It's love of strangers. It's the shocking thing that you do for someone that they would not expect that surprises them. It can be mechanical. It can be helping under the grass. It can be helping a neighbor that you see moving something into the house. Run over. Can I help you? Okay, people are going to think you're weird at first because it is so unbelievable to people today. We live in a private world where people are buried in computer relationships and technological relationships and don't have contacts. Jesus came and made contact with people. And He wants us to do the same thing. But He wants us to do it so that the great commandment and the great commission go hand in glove. Okay, so that the life that we live animates the gospel. It makes Jesus attractive. Something magnetic. It turns up the power of attraction. When we live in a way that is not so self-centered, but that actually takes time to care for others. But in that setting, what needs to happen? In that setting, we need to have the courage to introduce the message that matters most. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Here's what Paul said. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Now, what does Paul mean when he says, I am not ashamed? I will speak it in any context that God gives me an opportunity to speak it in. I am not ashamed. Okay? So when Paul gets in a situation as a result of his selfless service to others, and the name of Jesus has an opportunity for expression, what does Paul do? Paul boldly lays hold of that truth, the gospel, which is central, which is what people are looking for and don't know it. And what does he do? He says, I speak this truth into people's lives. For the Jew first, for the Gentile also. For in the gospel, and here's the key, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. Now, I don't know if you've ever just stopped and thought about that statement. In the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed by faith. Meaning what? 
Meaning that God willingly and freely, by grace, gives to undeserving people undeserved favor. And He loves them through the cross of Christ. He offers to them a status that they know they don't have. Righteousness from God. Not, not religion, not performance, not working up my own righteousness. No. But from outside, Paul's saying, there is hope for every person. Because there's a righteousness, an alien righteousness, that comes from outside of this world to individuals who what? Who believe. So what do we do? We share the goodness of Christ with people. We encourage them in the context, in the setting of a beautiful, God-centered, selfless life to come and to know Jesus Christ. That's the call of Jesus Christ on the life, I believe, of every believer. In Matthew 5 and verse 16, Jesus said this, He said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your hospitality, your selfless love, your servant life and glorify your Father with you who is in heaven. So the life that's lived is lived for what reason? If you do it and never speak of Christ, you have to ask yourself the question, why am I doing what I'm doing? Does it make me look good? Is there something about it that I want? Or is it about Christ? The answer to the question is found in what do you say when people compliment you for your different life? Do you point them to the source of that life? Or do you just simply say, thank you? Why do you do what you do? Why do you serve the people you serve? Okay? Paul ties it directly, Jesus ties it directly to the gospel. If you go to a fancy restaurant... They put something on your plate called garnish. I have no idea what that word means. Okay, I know what it is. Okay? It usually looks like kale, or cabbage, or parsley, and then the most despicable thing, fruit. Okay? I just don't like fruit, by and large. I don't know why they put that with food. Okay? Why do they do it? Because when it comes out, you say, oh, look, that looks so good. Okay? Most people I know don't eat the garnish. My wife does. Most people don't. Okay, why? Now it wasn't meant to be eaten. Okay? It was there for what? It was there to make everything look good. If you go to a restaurant and say, Oh, I'm just here for the garnish. <laughs> right? A little little cabbage, a little kale, a little parsley, and a little fruit. A triple serving and helping of garnish. Okay? Okay, listen, please understand this. If all you do is give people the pretty appearance, but you never share with them the gem that's in the setting, you have not done the work of Christ. And you have to question, what is my motive? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Okay? Selfless service makes Christ's love tangible. It makes it believable. It makes it seeable. It makes Him visible. Don't you understand that? They're looking at your life saying there's something about you that's different. And it's a magnet and it starts to attract and they say, talk to me. Why do you relate to your kids in that way? Why do you relate to your mate in that way? Why at work do you take it on the chin when everybody else is blowing up? Why don't you gather at the water cooler and gossip about everybody else? Why at school won't you talk neg negatively about the other girls? Why won't you do that? Why won't you curse? Okay. Hello? The silence is deafening when we don't point to Christ. Any other answer becomes self-serving. Okay? You've got to take the opportunity that He gives you and point to what matters most. Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, it's at the top of your sheet. It says, so the word of the Lord, after the resolution to the need in the church came, the word of the Lord spread. That was the purpose of the solution. It was so that Jesus would be more clearly seen in the meeting of the needs of people that were suffering and hurting under the weight of a broken world. Why? Because that act of service did what? It points to the greatest act of service, which is the cross. Our goal is not simply to relieve people's human pain and let them headed for hell. Think about it. It's to relieve the pain as a means of putting Jesus in a setting where He becomes tangible and believable because they've seen it in your life. 
Acts of love are not a substitute for the words of love and truth, but they always go hand in glove. Very seldom have I had an opportunity to share the gospel with someone who has not been at some level impacted by another Christian. It comes up over and over and over and over again. Where you're like, wow, you know, really? You know so-and-so? And this happened last night. We had a young couple at our house. They're here, and I won't, won't look at them and embarrass them. They know every young person on my street. By name. I had no, I've known these people for I don't know, a couple of years. I was like, you know, him and her. And I started pulling names up a little more obscure and younger or older. And I'm like, you know them all. Okay, I, I was just like, are you kidding me? Because they would be shocked if they know you're at my house to have dinner. Because <laughs> we're the Christians in the neighborhood. <laughs> okay? I just was like, God, what are you doing? And how do you want to work through this? Do you see? Practice hospitality. Get to know people you don't know. That's what Jesus did. And it's fundamental. It's, it's essential to what we do. If I'm not doing it, I'm not doing what Jesus did. May he help us. And then this last clarifying thought. Jesus saves us for service. Okay, I think Rick Warren gives a version of this. I think, Donna, I think you mentioned this to me about a year ago. Jesus saves us for service, not by our service. Does that make sense? Jesus saves you to serve, but he does not save you by what you do. He saves you by his service. And you know what he says? He says, now go out and do what I did. And when people say, what's up with all this? And I'll usually, I hope, I'm open with that. I'm very early on. Look, I'm a Christian, and I want you to know Jesus that someone said to me yesterday, you're not going to give up, are you? I said, nope. I don't plan to give up. Not, not on the table. It's not an option. Folks, and when you enter into that realm, is it scary at times? Do you get rejected at times? Yes, more times than not. But what did Jesus bear for you? Any rejection? A life of it? Hebrews 12 says he endured the contradiction of sinners against himself. And you know what he says? Look at me. So that you don't grow weary and lose heart in this life of Christ-like service. So you don't do it to get a place in heaven. You do it because he's given you one. And what happens? A degree of gratitude will well up in your heart that needs to overflow. It needs to find an expression. Why? Because you're focusing on the gospel. You're understanding that the Jesus Christ who transformed your life wants you to go out and act as, as, act as a little Christ, which is exactly what the word Christian in the book of Acts means. First time it's mentioned, they were first called Christians in Antioch. You know what it was? It was a slam. They're little imitations of Christ. May that badge of honor be cast upon every person in this church who knows Christ. A little representative of Jesus. Nothing special. Very average pastor. Okay, but you know what? When God lights your heart and fills you again with the Spirit of God, He will change you. What He wants you to do is to surrender to that work. Now, the reason we say that we're not saved by our works is bound up in a very, very powerful verse. Ephesians 2.8. Many of you probably haven't memorized. It says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is a gift from its gratis. It's not by works. So that no one can say, I got to heaven because I did this or I did that. No, we're all going to say I'm here because of Him. Okay, now listen to what it says. So that no one can boast. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Folks, it is, it, is, it is an undeniable connection between the change that Jesus Christ brings by the gospel in your life. He did this so that you and I would go and do what He did. If I'm not doing what He did, here's what I'm going to find in my Christian life. A deadness and emptiness, a hollowness in my self-centered pursuit of happiness. I will never find any because I was created in Christ to do good 
works. What is that? It's the garnish. It's the setting in which the preciousness of Christ is revealed. He saves you by His grace. You serve Him out of a profound and overwhelmed sense of gratitude that cuts you free from attachment to temporal things. And folks, there is no better place to be, and I'm not telling you I'm there, okay? But there is no better place to be in your Christian life than more in love with Jesus than you are with anything else in your life. Because you love Jesus in that kind of a way, you will be a servant. You'll be doing what you were cre- recreated to do. And you know what you'll find? You will find a joy that you can't put into words. Because you're changed. And God is at work in your life, giving you the purpose that you were looking for, that you lost in self-centeredness, that you regain in full surrender to the call and work of Jesus Christ. He saves us for service, but not by it, not by works, but for works of love. And he sends us out with the privilege of, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse verse 17, or verse 16, I think it is. He says, Now therefore, brother, I encourage you as ambassadors of Christ. You know, the kids in school say, represent, right? In the church, you know what we need to say to people? Represent. Represent. You can't live a self-centered life and represent the biblical Jesus. A self-centered life always presents a distorted Jesus that is unattractive, has no magnetism, and will have no bearing in eternity. Now, can I give you a scary thought? Robert Murray McShane made this statement. And I, I want to be careful as I read this quote to you because it's relatively strong. But if you know the man's life, you would give him full permission to speak to you. Missionary to India in the 1800s. Died in his late 20s. He said this. He said, there are many hearing me who now know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudging at all, requires a new heart. Folks, that stopped me in my tracks. If you don't love to give, if you don't love to serve, what is God saying to you today? The first, the first thing you have to ask yourself is, honestly, do I know Him? He comes to take charge. He comes to change. He comes to transform. He comes to liberate. He comes to make you a servant. He recreates you for good works. So if there's not a love of giving and selflessness, then you have to say to yourself, either it has gone very cold and perhaps dormant and needs to be awakened Tim Keller addressing this text talks about God through his word pushing a button. Okay, and here, here's what I believe with all my heart. If you know Christ, you go through these simple truths from Scripture, and I, I think I can say I've been accurate to Scripture this morning. You go through these truths, that God is pushing the button. If in your heart you feel deadness, you feel no inclination to change the way your life is, you need to ask yourself a question this morning. Do I know him? Because 1 John chapter 3 says something that is very, very strong. Verses 16 and 17. It says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity. And what is John doing? I think John is interpreting the parable of the Good Samaritan here, I think without question. If someone sees a brother in need and has no pity. How can the love of God be in him? But then he pushes the button. What does he say? He says, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue. Which means what? It's possible to have that kind of love as a Christian. And then what does he say? But let us love with actions and truth. My question to you this morning is, is God pushing the button? Is he pushing the button? And your heart saying, you know what? You need to awaken out of your self-centeredness. 
You need to get up and start to live like Jesus. Folks, I can tell you this. God's been doing this in my heart. What I love is the connection to the gospel. That the hand goes in the glove and Christ is represented in a way that is joyful in Christ. And I believe the Spirit of God attends when we go to Him and we say, God, push the button. Change me. Deliver me from this normal American life and dream. Wake me up. And let me see what you see when you look at my neighborhood. And I think what will happen ultimately is that the preciousness of Jesus will increase. And it will cause a deeper and greater and stronger generosity to emerge in your life as happened in the church in Corinth where Paul could say this. He says, I testify that in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy, where did that come from? Is it circumstantial? No, in the midst of their overwhelming poverty, what do they have? Overwhelming joy. Do you want that? Would you trade material things to be truly, fundamentally, gloriously happy? I would. And Paul says, in the midst of it, their overflowing joy and extreme poverty welled up in rich, open-handedness, generosity. He says, I testify that they gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. What does that mean? It means that when Christ becomes precious to me in all of His attributes and all of His characteristics and all the facets of His life, I will be changed. And I will be like Him. And I will serve, not out of guilt, because here's what I'm confident of. I am absolutely confident that I cannot guilt you into Christ-like service. Why? Because it's not a choice. It's a heart changed by the work of the Spirit. And only God can do that. So please hear me. My aim this morning, I don't want to make you feel guilty about self-centeredness. You probably feel guilty enough. And it hasn't changed you. The Spirit of God wants to come into your life where He wants to re-enter your life and refill you as He does over and over in the book of Acts and set you free from yourself, from your pride, from your sin, from your self-centeredness. And He wants to send you out into the greatest life you could ever live. A life like Christ. Serving, loving, and sharing the good news with others. Till the day that we see Him, God, would you help us?